Writers, 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Uh, so we have finished up with uh, John Kenneth Galbraith's American Capitalism, a study in countervailing power, uh, or the concept of countervailing power. And we are moving on to The Great Crash. The Great Crash was published in 1954, and it is it looks at the, the crash of 1929. Um it is, of these four books we're going to look at, this is the one that comes closest to being like a narrative history. Now, a lot of his evidence, a lot of his examples come straight from the headlines of newspapers. So it's not like a deeply researched book in that sense. But I, I think what he's going for here is that just general overview. And I don't know if it was the first to do that, but um, he he does something that's kind of distinctive here and that he doesn't really spend as much time as you'd expect on kind of the economics of the great crash. I think he, he kind of takes it for granted. It's just another bubble. And those are fairly well understood. He gives examples of other bubbles in, in history to compare it to. Um, but he's really interested in the, the feeling like the, the culture of the time, the economic culture of the time, the values, the ideas, the wisdom uh, both of the commoner and of the people on Wall Street, and how that contributed to the Great Crash. So I think this is a good book on, you know, if we think about how the American Capitalism book broke down myths about economic truths by destroying the idea of a competitive model uh, applying to the U.S. capitalism in the later 19th and 20th century, I think it's a fairly well-argued book. This one does the same thing but basically gets to the place where we're, we're told pretty clearly that we're not rational. And we don't, we don't, as individuals, make rational choices and institutions, banks, investors, investment banks, don't make rational choices. So this, in a way, is a, is a quite strong argument for some sort of social, I don't want to say state, but some sort of social regulation of, of financial markets. Um, but, you know, if we think about how a lot of economists now are interested in in psychology, why people buy what they do, why people make certain economic decisions when they do, and why some firms do that. And it's not always based on immediate uh, self-interest and, and, and what, it's not always the most efficient and it makes mistakes. So um, this um, is a good contribution in I think that genre of, of economic writing, and it's also a, just a useful introduction to the Great Crash itself as a historical event. So it's kind of an anomaly in all these books, too, because it does do it, that kind of narrative history. The others are, the other books aren't interested in that so much. Um, now, it's also, though, not uh, a history looking at the causes of the Great Depression. Um, he, he very clearly states here that the Great Depression had its own causes. And he, he has one chapter about that, but it's towards the end of the book, so most people reading it wouldn't focus on that. The causes of the Great Depression are there, and they're certainly related to the crash, because the crash um, 
you know, is in some way tied to the Great Depression, obviously. It, it maybe made it worse. It, uh, you know, it, it created that shock. It's a symbol. It's a symbolic moment that helped help us say, oh, this is definitely when the Great Depression began. But many sectors of the U.C. economy are already seeing lagging demand prior to the Great Crash. And, and that just worsened the crash. That was probably inevitable anyways. It, it took what would have been maybe a, a severe but manageable Wall Street crash into something that really made the Great Depression much worse. But my point here is this isn't a history of telling us why the Great Depression happened. For that, you're going to have to go to other sources or other writers. Um, you could take his word for it at the end. He, he has a chapter called Cause and Consequences, which, which really is about, the, that's the last chapter of the book, chapter 9, which gets into the cause of the Great Depression. But it's not his main focus. His main focus is on the moment especially the late 1920s, that moment of the culture, like that moment of a boom, of a bubble, and the, the culture of speculation, the culture, cultural history in a way, of, of, uh, of an irresponsible uh, financial bubble. So in this way, it's, not, it's probably my least favorite of the four books because it, it maybe has the least to teach us about some of our own current plight and about the fundamental nature of American capitalism because, you know, bubbles happen all the time. They happen in, in, in all sorts of quote-unquote free markets. Um, you know, they, like the most famous maybe is the tulip boom, right? The Dutch tulip boom of the 17th century. But anyways, nevertheless, it's a good book. It's a very, very short one. It's only about 150 pages or so. It's the shortest of the books in this, this series, but it does a really good job of, of lying out in just nine chapters the, the narrative history, the consequences of the Great Crash, and, and he breaks down some myths there too, which is, which is interesting. I'll talk about that probably in the next episode. I will do this over two, two episodes. And then finally, he gets to the Great Depression at, at the end. So um, this is a book that apparently has always been in in, in print, at least when he wrote his introduction in the 90s to a, to a new edition, uh, it had been constantly in print since 1955 to 1990 to the 1990s when he wrote that new introduction, which suggests there's always uh, a lot of interest in, in the crash of 1929 uh, among people, maybe investors, uh, among popular readers of, of economic history. It has, its, it has its place in national consciousness, to be sure. And, and certainly in the 20th century, but I think even to this day, we, we compare crashes to this, the, the Great Crash. And I think, think it still qualifies as the Great Crash in many ways because it did lead to, to uh, the Great Depression or is tied intimately to the Great Depression. Now, the way uh, Galbraith, Galbraith uh, explains this is he says that every time there's a, a correction in the stock market, everyone rushes to read about 1929. I think that's that's something I could believe. Um, obviously, there were crashes before, but this is the one that's really enshrined in in national consciousness. So, what does he say about this? Well, um, he starts out um, his first chapter is called "Vision of Boundless Hope and Optimism." That's a quote, and he's he starts telling the story in 1929. So the narrative here is actually quite short. It only covers about a year and a half of, of actual events. And a lot of it is just focused really on 1929 itself. The, the first half of the year where you had that very clear 
speculative boom and then the crash in this aftermath um, but <clears throat> uh, what was the time like why was there a stock market boom in the late 20s um, and the perception here it's all about perception and I think that's really the contribution here it's all about what people believed because the economy was not doing that well and I've read quite a lot about the Great Depression and its causes and um, you know, it seems like the agricultural sector was in some form of recession for much of the 1920s. Wages were pretty flat. Inequality was growing. All this stuff should sound pretty familiar to people living in the early 21st century. Frankly similar. But the perception was it's good. Uh, quote, the 20s in America were a very good time. Production and employment were high and ri in rising. Wages were not going up much, but prices were stable. Although many people were still very poor, more people were comfortably well off, well to do or rich than ever before. Finally, American capitalism was undoubtedly in a lively phase. In 1925 and 1929, the number of manufacturing establishments increased from 183,000 to 206,000, and the value of their output rose from 60.8 billions to 68 billion. Um, so this is all, if you look at it, it looks like times are good, right? And he gets to later on about how this is bit of a facade there is underlying crises but again he's really caring about here about what people thought and what was on the newspapers and what the investors were hearing and responding to um, so he jumps right in then into uh, in the same chapter talking about this culture of, of speculation um, this desire to get rich quick this this feeling that someone could potentially just by playing the stock market become come rich of course, most people weren't invested in the stock market at the time, so not everyone could play a part in it, but more people could play in the stock market than before, thanks to relatively cheap credit. He, he even talks about other booms at the time, because the 1920s weren't just the boom in the stock market, you had other booms. And the one I didn't know that much about, um, but was, was fun to read about, because I did live in Miami for a few years, was the, the Florida speculation boom in, in land. Um, Quote, however, speculation does not depend entirely on the capacity for self-delusion. In Florida, land was divided into building lots and sold for a 10% down payment. Palpably, much of this unlovely terrain was thus changed hands as a repugnant to the people who brought it as to the passerby. The buyers did not expect to live on it. It was not easy to suppose that anyone ever would, end quote. So the boom here was a futures market. No one really wanted this land, but the belief was that it would be developed at some point, bought up, and whoever had it, when it was bought up by the developers, would would get rich off it. Um, if, if you want a really good history looking at futures markets, there's a book I recommend for you, and it's called Nature's Metropolis by William Cronin. I've recommended this book, I think, before. I think it's one of the best books of environmental history ever written. It's a history of Chicago, and particularly Chicago's relation to the wheat, wood, and meat uh, trade uh, as it developed in the West, and to a lesser degree, the, the Great Lakes Northwoods. There was wood. Um, but especially with grain, he does a really great job talking about just how futures markets worked and how, you know, many people were, in, were buying up tons and tons of grain, not with the hopes of having this grain delivered to their house, but for, for to sale, but because at some point it would be sold to stores, to breakeries, to consumers, and you wanted to have it when it was sold at the highest price, but you didn't want to have it in your hand when it finally got delivered because then you're stuck with, um, Rain you can't use. And that's kind of how speculative markets work. And you had other examples of it, not just the stock stock market itself. 
So the question we need to ask then, and Galbraith has to try to ask, is who's to blame? And why does this have to, you know, who's to blame for the boom, right? Not so much the crash, so much we'll get to that, but who's to blame for the boom? Because without the boom, you don't have the crash. And he kind of struggles to find a specific person you can answer. And I think this is partially also this culture of speculation. When you have thousands and thousands, maybe millions of people playing this game, it, it's hard to blame any one person or if you, or you want to kind of deflect blame away from the fundamental values and institutions of capitalism to some, some monster that can be blamed, you know, the, the, and of course the one that gets picked on all the time. And still today, I still hear people making this case is it was the Federal Reserve. He writes on this, this view that the action of the Federal Reserve authorities in 1927 was responsible for the speculation and collapse which followed has not never been seriously shaken. There are reasons why it's attractive. It is simple and it exonerates both the American people and their economic system from any substantial blame. The danger of being guarded, guided by foreigners is well known and Norman and Schatz had some special reputation for sinister motives, end quote. Almost kind of this suggestion kind of of, of, of anti-Semitism there, right? You know, you blame the banks. It's like a conspiracy theory, ultimately, right? It's, it's why conspiracy truth theories, I mean, are attractive. Not that this was a conspiracy theory, but conspiracy theories are attractive because they allow people to say, oh, it wasn't my fault that that happened. Um, and... And it's attractive for another reason, according to um, Galbraith, and that is there's a little bit of truth to it. And that is you can't speculate if credit's not cheap. Well, maybe you can if you're rich, but if, if you're just an, an average investor, even a rich person who doesn't primarily make their money from investments on the stock market, you know, unless you can get cheap credit, you're not going to buy a bunch of stock. But with credit being fairly... Um, plentiful and cheap, um, and it got more expensive in 27 to 29, actually. But so, but the Federal Reserve had fairly low interest rates. Said fairly low interest rates before 27, right? So as long as your interest rates on your that that you borrowed the money, the interest rates on the money you borrowed to buy your stocks was less than the profit you expected to make, there was a huge incentive to do that. And perhaps there was something the Federal Reserve could have done to mitigate that speculative boom. And, and they clearly didn't have the political will or the uh, intention to do that. We also a little get, get a little bit here on the election of Hoover, which is it's kind of ironic, again, when we think about perception and how important uh, leadership is in setting the tone of the market, is that Hoover apparently privately was incredibly worried about the speculative boom at the time, but he didn't actually do anything about it, right? He didn't actually admit, in, implement any policy when he was elected, and so he did nothing to stop it. But had he just maybe spoke, he could have slowed down the boom in its final final months. But who knows if if that would have happened? But you know the the big theme here, especially early on, is just how important the radio is, the media, the 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 newspapers in, in telling everyone that everything is fine. Um, and frankly, according to Galbraith, again, there was just simply no better way to make money relatively quickly in 1929 than the stock market. Everything else was hard. And the stock market, whatever you want to say about it, is basically easy. And at least among a certain class of people, everyone was getting rich. Right. So it didn't feel you didn't have that feeling of, of risk the way maybe Hoover dad deep down in his in his heart. I don't know if that's if that's true or that was later on. He edited his memoirs to 
to make it look like he was prescient about this, but it was just a, the age of making money and the stock market was one of the easiest ways to do that. So um, with chapter one ends, then we have this out of control boom and, and a growing awareness, at least among some people, that this boom was real, but it was impossible to stop through individual action. So he, chapter two then is called Something Should Be Done. And this is Galbraith's little essay on what people thought could be done, what kind of what suggestions were there and, and why certain decisions weren't taken that, that may have stopped, may have slowed down the speculative boom. He has a great uh, paragraph here, which I think suggests a lot about just the problem of, of democracy and the problem of public good in, in economic issues, how in, impossible it is to, to regulate these economies and how impossible it is to even determine what's best and who's going to make those decisions. He writes, all of this being so, he, he means that the all booms have to end. All this being so, the position of the people who had the least, at least nominal responsibility for what was going on was a complex one. One of the oldest puzzles of politics is who to regulate the regulators. But an equally baffling problem, which has never received the intention it deserves, is who's to make wise those who are required to have wisdom. So the problem is when you go, when you, when you notice a problem or an imbalance in the economy, when you notice the speculative boom, when you notice maybe a crash might come, you know, you wait for leadership from the people who are supposed to provide that leadership. But who's that to be? It's not always self-evident. Who do you listen to? Who do the politicians listen to? Who do the policymakers listen to? It's the people who are deemed wise, not necessarily the people who are the wise ones. So really what it comes down to, though, is, is some sort of regulation. Um, but there's a general opposition to regulation at the time coming from like the executive branch. So that leaves really... And again, maybe it's right to blame the Federal Reserve in a way. Um, it, it, it's left to the central banks, right? But the central banks are a problem. They're, it's basically alchemy. Um, maybe not in, in a literal sense, but I, I think that's true to a degree. But it's got this mystique. It's like magic. Um, the, it's hidden. Its actions are hidden, right? It's, it's a separate institution. It's not really clearly mode, you know, like driven by politics. It makes decisions, it just like buys securities and stuff, right? Plays with the interest rate. And, you know, that's kind of opaque. And it's not clear to most people how that actually affects things like the stock market, which for whatever, what you know, even though it's a, I think it's pretty far from Main Street, you know, we, we saw that during this coronavirus, you know, one of the worst days for unemployment in American history, maybe the worst day for unemployment claims in American history. The stock market was doing well. Right. You know, we don't need to rehash this. I think we all know this, that a booming stock market doesn't necessarily mean higher wages or more consumption or more demand. It means a bunch of people got rich that day. Um, but. What am I trying to say? Anyways, I forget what I was thinking. I forget where that was going. Doesn't matter. Uh, what could be done? What could the Federal Reserve do? Galbraith says, well, they could do the, the main tool in their disposal is sell securities. If they are, if there's a speculative boom, they could try to lower the price of stocks by selling stocks, essentially. And they, but they didn't have stocks to sell, right? And this, the root problem here was too much power had been given to private lenders and banks and investment bankers. So, what more drastic action could have been done by Congress, by the president, by the by the administration. 
Now he lists a few things they he could have they could have done, but none of it was really could have been stomached by by the philosophy, the economic philosophy of the time. So in a way, the Federal Reserve is presented here as a bit in a tough spot. On the one hand, it's responsible for the security of this banking system in Wall Street and the, and the markets. But at the same time, you have this laissez-faire attitude that's stronger than ever, made partially because of the success of this boom and because so many people are getting rich. And so it's a victory of laissez-faire policy. And even Roosevelt, even when Roosevelt becomes president, yes, he came in with this New Deal program, but we all know that he had to change what that program's goals were within a couple of years. Um, by the midterm election, he had to radicalize the New Deal quite a lot with the WPA and Social Security and the Wagner Act. But he even came in with a laissez-faire attitude towards the stock market, even after the, the crash, just a few years after the crash. So, um, you know, I think that's, that's partially, I think, Gal Galbraith's point is we should be learning from this crash and setting policy to prevent this kind of thing again. But, you know, 20 years out, it's just it's even more difficult to do if Roosevelt couldn't think of really strong regulations on on the markets in 1932 and 1933. It's not surprising that people t two decades out are also back enamored, back and enamored with the with the markets. So then we get to chapter three. Chapter two is mostly about the Federal Reserve Bank and its its powers and its opportunities. Chapter three is called In Goldman Sachs We Trust. Um, and this is then about the bankers. Like what is the fault of the bankers? What could the bankers have done? And, and to what degree are the bankers to blame here, especially the investment bankers? Um, and he starts here talking about consolidation. Um, this kind of goes back to the stuff in the first book, American Capitalism, where American capitalism just tends towards scale, economies of scale and large institutions, oligopoly. Nowhere is this, or, or this is just as true in finance as it was in production. And so we get the merger movement of the 1920s, which made these banks, you know, larger and larger. Kind of what we'd say now, too big to fail, right? And he has a fairly good description here, these mergers and the creation of investment trusts. So long story short about the trust, I mean, the trust is just a way, a, a way of owning businesses, right? And, and firms. Um, and what that, it just, it just it furthered the consolidation, right? Even if you'd had separate institutions, you know, if, if trusts were involved in a lot of these, they, or you had a relatively small amount of financial interests controlling a lot of different firms. And that's uh, just kind of a furthering the, 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 the consolidation. Um, so he says here, during 1929, an estimated 186 investment trusts were organized. In the early months of 1929, they were being promoted at a rate of approximately one each business day for a total of 265 made their appearance during the course of the year. In 1927, the trust sold to the public around 400 million worth of securities. In 1929, they marked an estimated three billions worth. This was at least a third of all new capital issues in that year. So this feeds into the speculative boom, obviously. He goes into a little bit about how the trust works, and some of this does kind of come off a little bit like alchemy to me. It's not really my expertise. Um, I understand macroeconomics a little bit better than I understand some of this institutional finance stuff, but forgive me for that. Uh, that's where you can come in and, and correct me, uh, clarify what, what he, Galbraith is saying here. 
Um, but this chapter ends in with like the formation and the rise of the most significant of these investment trusts, um, investment banking, partnerships, brokerships, whatever, Goldman Sachs and company. Um, and then we have chapter four, which will be the last chapter I'll look at today. Like I said, this is a short book, but I still want to do it over two episodes. Uh, it's a little bit more than 150. Usually it's like if something's 150 pages or less. I'll try to do it in one episode. If it's a little bit more, I, I might find it worthwhile to break it up um, into two episodes. Um, anyways, The Twilight of the Illusion. This is all about, I think this is really the heart of the argument for me or what I was most interested in is about the media and about the kind of the ideology, the ideas that were floating around at the time, where people got their intelligence on brokerage loans, where people got their encouragement to partake, partake in the boom, where people got uh, egged on, if you will, right? Like what were, you know, they didn't have, M you know, CNBC or whatever. They didn't have financial 24, uh, financial news 24 hours a day then, but you did have a lot of financial news there in all these different magazines and journals that created a culture um, and that culture spread out even beyond the people who are the real market for that the people who are going to likely get involved in investment to um, the culture at large quote by the summer of 1929 the market had not only had not only dominated the news it dominated the culture the reassurance um, minority which at other times had acknowledged its interest in St. Thomas Aquinas, Proust, psychoanalysis, psychosomatic medicine, then spoke of united corporations, united foundries and steel. Only the most aggressive of the eccentrics maintained their detachment from the market and their interest in auto-suggestion or communism, end quote. You know what that reminds me of a little bit is like how in the 90s, historians were all about like globalization. And they were all about like, that's when world history had its big boom. Right. And I think world history turn in, in the turn to world history is a good turn. I think teaching world history is better than teaching Western Civ. I think it's a better course. But I am aware that it really took off in the 90s. And some of it was, yeah, we shouldn't just look at the West. We should look at the rest of the world. But a lot of world history was about corporations. It's about the East India Company. It's about trade. It's about markets. You know, everything from the slave trade to the tulip boom to the Virginia Company, East India Company, the flows of silver around the world. And you started getting a, a history, a narrative of history that parodied the, the global economy of the 90s in a way. And I don't know if that's totally, you know, they came to the wrong conclusions about things, but they do come up with certain heroes and drivers of the story that I do think distort the reality of history in a way. And Galbraith here is saying that certainly in the course of the of 1929 more and more of just the educated class started writing about banking and investment in the stock market and the boom because that's that's where all the attention of culture and literary culture were so i guess that's it um that's enough i think i think you get the idea again this is a really really short read it's just a couple hours you can you can read this whole book um, but in the next episode, I will talk about the second half of the Great Crash, which will focus mostly on the consequences, the, some of the, the things that emerge in the aftermath of it uh, for culture, for uh, even he even breaks down the, the, the mythology of the suicide, uh, the peak in suicides after the Great Crash. And then we can get 
really down into what I think is maybe the most important chapter for people who just want to be aware of how they can watch out. I mean, I don't care that much about a, about a stock market crash that much. I care about a Great Depression happening again. But uh, that final chapter of the book, I think, is a great summary of the causes of the Great Depression. So anyways, that's it for now. Sorry for a shorter episode than the previous two. If you really like this economic stuff, I'm a little bit, I guess, ill-informed on trusts and investment banking. So there's a, there's a limit to everything I grokked and, and feel confident to talk about. But I think what's really cool about this book is how he puts at the center of the story the media and the, the culture of the time. So, um, yeah, that's it for now. But if there's anything else you think I should add or, 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 or revise in my approach to summarizing this book, um, let me know. Um, send me an email. Send me an email to 100pagescast at gmail.com or you can just leave a comment below. Um, yeah, that's it for now. So I will see you next time with part two of The Great Crash by John Kenneth Gilbert. Thanks for listening. It's all a game Either way it's still the same Schools are crying too They can't do the job they want to do We can go to the moon and float in space 